Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning as you have made your way out on this chilly October morning. It finally feels like October. I appreciate that. I didn't want to go from the 80s to the zeros without at least enjoying some of the fall season. And so it is good to be here at this temperature and enjoying it. We continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians. Please take your Bibles and turn there. As you are turning there, I want to have a special thank you to those of the Special Events Committee who yesterday hosted uh, the bonfires and the celebration out at the Toonstra's place and hope that you were able to enjoy. Many of you did. Many of you were out there enjoying the weather and even though it was kind of rainy and at different times it was difficult for them to set up, we praise the Lord. We had a great night. While we were there at least, it didn't rain and so we praise the Lord uh, for that evening, a time of fellowship and enjoying uh, the fall season together as a church body and fellowship there. And so thank you for those who made that possible and for all of you who were able to attend. Thank you for being a part of that as well. And then one brief word as we begin to turn our hearts towards First Thessalonians. You have certainly seen the news over the last uh, 36 hours or so, specifically in the last 24 hours of what is going on in Israel. And so continue to be in prayer there for those who are there, especially for believers who are there in this land. Uh, we recognize the challenges that are there. We recognize that there are things that are deep that you and I don't understand because of our Western world that are cultural. And so continue to be in prayer there as we uh, recognize that God is, still has a purpose and a plan for his people Israel. And uh, we are anxious to see it unfold. And so as we see these events unfold, let us be those who are constantly keeping our head up, looking forward to eternity when Christ will resolve these issues. There's a lot of calls for peace and ceasefire and all of those things. There will not be lasting peace in the land of Israel until Christ establishes it. And so it's in these moments that we look towards this conflict that is ensuing right now and we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we're yearning for that day. That is... Paul reminding us to continue to be looking ahead. That is where we were at last week in our study of 1 Thessalonians. And we continue in that same vein and theme this morning as we continue to move through now into chapter 3 of the book of 1 Thessalonians. As we do so, Mark Antony was well known as a silver-throated orator of Rome. He was credited with the accolade of being a brilliant man as well as being a strong leader and courageous soldier. Having said that, he had one gaping hole or chink in his armor. He lacked strength of character. On the outside, he was powerful and impressive. On the inside, he was weak and vulnerable, as you will often see in many leaders, especially world leaders, that same characteristic. His tutor is reputed to have been so enraged on one occasion that he shouted at Mark Antony, O Marcus, O colossal child, able to conquer the world and unable to to resist temptation. Most of us know the sequel to the story. For his wildly known and costly temptation sailed up the river to him on a barge. Cleopatra captured his unguarded heart and their sinful relationship cost Mark Antony, his wife, his place as a world leader, and ultimately his life because he could not avoid temptation. As we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, as we near the end of the passage we're going to study this morning, we're going to recognize Satan's temptations. In the midst of our trials, we recognize that we do face trials. Those trials have a place and a purpose, but if we allow Satan's temptations to enter in, and we have the same chink in our armor as Mark Antony had in his that we will be those who, like Mark Antony, will meet destruction, devastation that we had not intended to meet. And so as we dig into 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word as we dig into this text. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we this morning pray for those who are in the land of Israel and those who are believers in this land who know Christ as the Messiah, who have accepted him as their Savior. We pray that today would be a day where they are able to reach out to their friends and neighbors. We know that Paul yearned and longed for 
the people of Israel to repent and to turn to the things of the Lord. Lord, we continue to pray that today. We pray that this would be a nation that will be made ready for the last days, for the millennial kingdom. We praise you that you are at work in them, in this group of people, but we recognize that today they face challenges that would remind them of their need to depend upon you. We know that this is a land that is arrogant and boastful in many ways against you, and so we pray that through these events that you would humble this nation, that they would fall before you and worship. Lord, it is our joy and privilege, most of us being Gentile believers, it is our joy and privilege to pray for them, to pray for eternity, and to pray for the millennial kingdom that will be coming as well. We do ask that you would cause us as a church to rise and to lift our heads, to look towards eternity with great joy and anticipation that you will fulfill the promises that you spoke. Paul bases, the Apostle Paul bases great truth at the end of Romans chapter 8 upon your consistency and faithfulness in fulfilling your word. And in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, Paul turns then to ask the question, what about the land of Israel? Lord, we know that so many of our promises that you have given to us as believers are faithful and true and are based in the similar way as those in the land of Israel. So Lord, as you fulfill all of your word, we praise you and we thank you for your faithfulness, your faithful endurance with the people who have been so rebellious against you, and we pray for their repentance. Lord, as we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians, we are those who want to dig deeply into this text that is before us. We want to be those who understand that when we face trials, that there is opportunity for us to see you at work. Lord, we, we chafe, we flee from, and we run from those ideas of having to face persecutions and challenges against our faith. But I praise you that you use them for your glory. Today we pray that you would give us understanding of the purpose of those and that we, like the Thessalonian believers, would stand firm and steadfast, not only listening to the instruction that the Apostle Paul through the Spirit of God gives to the Thessalonians, but also recognizing with great joy on our own the truth of standing firm for your glory, that you alone would be glorified in it. So Lord, we ask your blessing upon our time and your word. We pray that you'd give me the words to speak and give us hearts to listen, to receive your word and to obey it, that your name would be glorified in that as well. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning as we begin in chapter 3, we're really picking back up where we had been before and we're in the first part of Timothy's mission. Paul is sending Timothy back to Thessalonica. As he does so, he's sending him out where Paul would rather go. Paul would rather be there with Timothy instead of remaining back where he is at the moment, at least where he's sending Timothy out. He's in Athens. Paul would rather be in Thessalonica and we're going to see that as it unfolds this morning as Paul sends Timothy on his first or on a missionary journey of his own and we're right in the middle of a thought. We ended chapter 2 as Paul has been encouraging and warning the believers in Thessalonica that their persecutions but that Paul has been hindered from being there among them. And so Paul has pointed to the hindrances of Satan that have stood in the way. And Paul has tried and tried and tried again to get to Thessalonica and Satan has hindered him. And God has permitted that hindrance. And so now, as Paul is not able to go to Thessalonica, he's sending Timothy in his place. And Timothy has a specific mission. There's a lot we have to learn as we study through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Some of it follows the theme of what Paul is saying, and some of it are elements that we're going to pull out and we're going to intentionally take a rabbit trail, a lesson to learn as we follow along the line that leads us to what Paul has already done in the life of Timothy. And we're going to see that in a moment as we have some lessons on discipleship. That's our next point. But as we recognize the the theme of what Paul is doing, he's sending Timothy on. Chapter 2 concludes where chapter 3 is picking up. The heart of the apostle is concerned with the believers in Thessalonica. He's burdened for them because they are facing persecutions for their faith. And he says this in verse 1. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left left in Athens alone. Paul is willing to be left in Athens alone. 
because of and for the sake of the spiritual well-being of the church that so burdened him. He's in Athens as he's thinking this, as he's preparing to send Timothy out, but his heart is in Thessalonica. His heart is there with these believers that he, remember, had been ripped from, torn from, he says, in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, I was torn from you, torn away from you. Paul desires to be back there. By the time that Paul is writing the book, he will have arrived in Corinth, but when he sends Timothy out in Acts chapter 17, he is in Athens, and he's going to, in Acts chapter 17, we recognize Paul doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be in Athens. In fact, he says here in verse three, in chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind. He was willing to be left behind in Athens. This term left behind is a term that is similar to one we've already seen. The word torn away that I just referenced in verse 17 was where we get our idea of a child being orphaned from its parents, being pulled away from their parents. So Paul has said now that this word related to left behind is that now he is that orphaned child. He's picked up on verse 17 and said, I was torn away and I was left behind. Both of those related to our words for being orphaned. Paul says he was orphaned, torn away from the church once, and now left behind and able to get back to them. Athens is not Paul's favorite place. There is a wonderful study to do through Acts chapter 17, and I've referenced it many times. And today, for the believer who lives in this age, which, by the way, is all of you <laughs> who know Christ as Savior, you should study Acts 17. Because what Paul does at the Oropagus is brilliant in his defense of the faith of Jesus Christ. He does not start where he started with Jewish audiences, where he is able to pick up on the one true God and then define for them who the Messiah is. Instead, Paul has to start back with the creator God, the God above all of the gods who are in Athens, these little g-gods with all of the temples and all of the... Uh, the philosophy that was built upon them, Paul says, I want you to know the God who is above all of them. And the Athenians had a temple to an unknown God, and Paul picks up on that. Just in case the Athenians had missed any of the gods, Paul said they had built a temple to an unknown God, and Paul says, let me tell you about the gods you don't know. He's the creator of the world, and Paul walks from creation through Christ, and he has a very small handful of people who will pay attention. Athens is not where Paul wants to be. He feels here, despite this brilliant and great evangelistic message at the Oropagus, Paul feels alone because he is alone. He is bothered by the paganism that surrounds him. Nevertheless, while he's in Athens, his heart is in Thessalonica, and so he sends Timothy to them. And then he gives to us a glimpse of who Timothy is. We've looked into the life of Timothy before, especially when we studied in the book of Philippians uh, several months ago. But notice what Paul says of Timothy. He says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, verse 2, chapter 3. Did you notice what Paul called Timothy? These are important things, and we paused and we looked at them in the book of Philippians, but we look at them again. He says that he is a brother, that Timothy is a brother and God's co-worker. Paul's description of Timothy helps us understand what biblical discipleship is, and so we're going to take a rabbit trail for just a moment. If you want to be a faithful, biblical disciple-maker, which you are all commanded to be, then you will recognize what Paul is doing here. Remember who Timothy is. Timothy is half Gentile, half Jew. His father was a Greek. His mother was Jewish. Timothy was trained by his mother and grandmother in the things of the Word of God, but he's not in the same classification as Paul is. Paul is a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees before he came to know Christ. He has the ethnic lines. Timothy is very different 
Timothy doesn't have the ethnic lines. And yet Paul has brought in Timothy to minister alongside of him, and he does not treat Timothy as if he were second class. He does not treat Timothy as if he was anything other than a son in the faith. And he's training him, and he calls his young protege brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by brother? Brother means, as Paul is referring to him as brother, he was meaning that he was a saved man in the family of God, obviously. But obviously as well that they enjoyed a sweet fellowship together. And it was a sheer joy and genuine delight for Paul to have him as his right-hand man. We see something here, though, of the dignity of that role. Paul does not say, yep, here's my young protege, I'm sending him to you, treat him kind of nice because he's my young protege, you know, don't, don't abuse him. He doesn't say, yeah, this is, this is my son in the faith, be, be very, uh, very kind, treat him as if you would treat me. He doesn't say that, he says he's a brother. There's an equality and a dignity in this role. Paul does not point out his youthfulness, Paul does not point out his insufficiencies or the chinks in Timothy's armor. He simply says he's a brother. In spite of his youth, Timothy had a stable relationship with the Lord and was found faithful by Paul. And so Paul treated him as if he were just like Paul. If you're a disciple maker... Be very cautious that you don't look down on the youth of somebody else. Maybe you've been training them for a long period of time. And you say, yeah, look at them. They're still young. I still see that youthful enthusiasm and zeal. They're kind of like in that puppy stage of Christ. Raise them, train them, train them and equip them to take over your roles as soon as possible. Paul did that with Timothy. And it would not be long before Paul would send Timothy into the heart of ministry in one of the most difficult places on the planet at the time, in Ephesus. Paul would send Timothy to be the pastor where Paul wanted to be the pastor. Paul would send Timothy to the church that Paul wanted to be the pastor of because he thought so highly of Timothy. If you are a disciple maker, Be discipling someone to take the roles you want, but God hasn't permitted you to go. To be a faithful disciple maker means you're going to train somebody to do things that you want to do, but that God hasn't permitted you to do. Train them in such a way as that. He also calls him, not only brother, but God's fellow worker. In other words, Timothy was a team player. He was a servant, unafraid of doing the hard work of ministry, and he had... Sterling qualities needed to effectively minister to other young believers. He had patience and lots of it. His first-rate dedication to whatever assignment the Lord entrusted to him was combined with a measure of love and grace. And Paul did not say, Timothy, you've got all the pieces. I could see that God has equipped you well, but I don't think that you're ready to do the hard work of ministry. That's often what we in older generations, when we have younger disciples, say, you're doing great, doing a good job, way to keep going, but you stay in this ministry because uh, I don't think you're ready for the ministry I'm ready for. Paul didn't do that. Where did Paul want to be? We've already established where Paul wanted to be. He wanted to be in Thessalonica. He wanted to be there ministering, and he could not be there to minister. And we see his heart, we see his grieving over that, and so who does he send? His closest disciple, Timothy. I'm sending Timothy. He's young, but he's going. Did Paul have concerns about if Timothy would make mistakes? I'm sure he did, but he entrusted Timothy to that work. Let us follow the example of Paul in his dealing with and ministry to the young Timothy. Let us equip, train, and dedicate another generation to the work of the Lord and let us let them do it. Let us not stand in their way. Let us train and equip them, but let us not stand in the way. 
Timothy would become a young pastor in the early church. And Paul becomes the one who says, you go do ministry and I'll be your greatest cheerleader. And that's what Timothy did. We're going to see that actually next week, Lord willing, as we continue in the text. Because Timothy's going to return after his work in Thessalonica. And now he doesn't return to Athens where Paul is at at the moment that he sends Timothy out. Now he's going to return to Corinth. He's going to meet Paul there and he's going to report. And we're going to see that next week, Lord willing. But in the meantime, we want to see Timothy's work. What was Timothy tasked to do? Remember this because we're going to pick it up next week. What was Timothy tasked to do? His task was this, that he was to establish and to exhort the Thessalonians in their faith. We must develop hearts of concern for one another like the heart that Paul had for the Thessalonians. He's sending Timothy to establish and to exhort the faith of the Thessalonian believers. To establish means to make them stronger, and to exhort means to encourage them in that work when they may have been and probably were discouraged. The church needed to be boosted up and encouraged because they have faced persecutions and trials. They have saw, seen Paul ripped away from them, and Paul leaves Thessalonica, and he goes to Athens. We're not talking months here. We're talking mere weeks. Paul has been ripped from Thessalonica. He's been... He's gone off to Athens. He sent Timothy back in a short period of time. As he is sending Timothy back, we recognize that the church at Thessalonica is brand new. They're fledgling. They were only three weeks old when Paul was torn from them. And Timothy is going back because this was no doubt a traumatic experience. One day they are growing and the church is adding to their number over and over and over, and they're all brand new in the faith, and suddenly the one who led them to Christ is torn from them. And then they have to deal with the aftermath. They've got to deal with the persecutions that come from the Jews who hate them, from the Gentiles who've been provoked by the Jews who hate them. Paul was not unduly concerned about their comfort. He was not too alarmed about their welfare. He was not stressed out about their prosperity. Those things were important, but they're not all important. It is their faith that Paul was most interested in. Their daily relationship with the Lord mattered most to Paul. There's a personal application. Does your daily faith, does your daily walk with the Lord matter most to you? And then, are you concerned about it in other believers? Paul was. Paul was concerned of the Thessalonians walking in the things of Christ. He was concerned that they would not lose heart because of the trials that they faced. Paul was deeply concerned for them. And so that is Timothy's mission. Timothy's purpose and work was to encourage and to exhort. To strengthen, establishment, and to exhort. But what is the message? The message delivered we find still in verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, that... No one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has now come to pass, and just as you know. Paul is reminding them through Timothy of what he has already said to them. And first, he's encouraging them to stand firm, to stand firm. Paul has a pretty good understanding of the trials that this fledgling church faces, as he had experienced it on his first missionary journey in so many places he'd left behind. He understands how the Judaizers would come in and among them. He understands the pressures from those who were outside of the church, but had some understanding of the Old Testament would push against and strain these new believers in Thessalonica. He knows the devastating results that these challenges can bring to them. He watched it, and he's watched it time and time again. So Timothy's message to establish and to exhort 
was to teach them how to stand firm and not be moved by the afflictions. We in our world today, in our, our part of the world today, have fewer opportunities to see this lived out, to see this practice, but I believe that we're seeing it increasing today. Where your stand for the things of the Word of God are going to cause an unbelieving world to mock and to scoff and just begin to persecute you. Your stand for godliness in the workplace, to stand for a biblical understanding of gender in the workplace, to stand for a biblical understanding of marriage in the workplace, is going to press upon you in this generation. And Paul, while the struggles and the trials that the Thessalonian believers were facing is somewhat different, the outcome was the same. And Paul was concerned for the day-to-day walk of the believers in Thessalonica. He says to them that, they, that no one would be moved by these afflictions. The word for moved came to refer to the deception of Satan through flattery. It actually was originally the word for the tail of a dog wagging. That's where the term came from. The idea of uh, the back end of a dog, you know, when the dog is happy and the tail's moving and the back end of the dog is moving too. Uh, that's where the word originated from. And then it began to be those that would be moved, swayed by the flattery. Because when does the dog do that? When you're like, oh, good boy. <laughs> right? That's when the dog is all excited and, or maybe you're offering them food or something like that. So the dog is moved by flattery. The term began to take on the negative connotations then of people being moved by Satan's flattery. And how does Satan do this when it comes to temptations? You don't really deserve to suffer, do you? Why would God save you and then cause you to suffer for his sake? That is the flattery that Paul is calling out. Paul is worried, extremely worried, that their sufferings might lead them to stray away from Christ. And so Paul begins to confront the issues of the heart. He's confronting the heart issues. Paul's concern is the concern of every faithful shepherd. The trials faced as Christians can cause believers to give up following Christ because there is something in us that says, I deserve better than this. That's not godliness, by the way. That's the evidence of your sin nature still there. I deserve better. And isn't that what we're taught in our world today? That hot dog that you received from the stand down the road better be warm. Those french fries, (laughs) this is true by the way. Those french fries had better be warm. I deserve nothing less. Paul's concern that they would give up or maybe that they would question the character or attentiveness of God. God, are you even paying attention? Do you not know the hurt of my circumstances today? It may be tempting for the believer in the midst of trials to believe that God either does not have the power or the will to prevent the sufferings. And that has been the case throughout all of the church. There is this question that is posed in our mind, does God really have the capacity to deal with my struggles? And if he does, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he stop this illness? Why doesn't he stop this pain? Why doesn't he stop this persecution? Why doesn't he remove those who mock him? Maybe we feel like he's not strong enough to shield us from tribulations that we face. Or that he does not care what happens to little me anyways. 
Paul's unqualified response is that suffering is an integral part, an essential component of the unfolding purposes of God for all of his children. That's the text that Scott read for us this morning. That it is not only given to us to suffer, but it is good for us in God's design. And it is a privilege for us in God's design. We recoil from such thoughts naturally, from our sin nature. We recoil from such thoughts as those. But what about when trials intrude? What about when trials intrude? Notice what Paul says. He says, we were destined for this. He says, for you yourselves know We're not to be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. The truth of the presence of trials was something they knew well. The apostle handles trouble by combining a sensitive heart with a common sense approach, and he is both tactful and tender. And I praise the Lord for this example, because this is what we ought to be to one another. Paul gives them a word of assurance by informing them that afflictions and trials are inevitable for the Christian life. They are inevitable. Sometimes you're going to suffer less than somebody else, but they are inevitable. If you were to make a stand for the things of Christ, you will suffer in some way. They are inevitable. There's no getting away from it. The Christian life is not a Sunday picnic all the time. And it was never intended to be. It's not intended to be. Rather, Paul says trials and troubles will come. And those who, when they do, they will hurt. Paul doesn't diminish the hurt. Paul doesn't diminish the pain. He says, oh, when they come, it'll just be peaches and cream. And doesn't say it's going to be easy. We cannot avoid them. We cannot play hide and seek with them. They are part and parcel for every believer's experience, one author writes. According to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, which Scott read for us this morning, those who suffer for the sake of Christ suffer in one sense as a privilege of partaking in the sufferings of Christ. Why is it a privilege? Because it reminds us what Christ paid for us. It points to Christ. It reminds us of the cross of Christ. What is our attitude when trials come? Paul says that we were destined for these. In other words, trials are part of the Christian's experience. And so therefore, when trials intrude into our life and invade our privacy, they are not accidents waiting to happen. So what is our attitude in the midst of those things? How do we view them? Do we view them as divine appointments that God is going to use the trials in our life to cause us to reflect him greater or to become more like him? Or on the other side, do we view them as God being insufficient, unable, incapable? Our sinful flesh will seek to try to make or at least paint God as one who's insufficient, Unable to accomplish what we believe God should accomplish when we don't realize that what God is doing is taking us uh, to the refiner's fire. When we encounter the questions that come during the trials, we need to remember that God has a purpose in them. Write these few passages down. Remember Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? Read the context of that later this week. Joseph says, you meant to, he's speaking to his brothers who have come to him. And now they realize who he is after they sold him into slavery. And now he's second in lead in Egypt. And he has arranged for their their preservation in the midst of famine. And Paul, or rather Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. So study the context of Genesis chapter 50. Study also the context and specifically the verse in Romans 8, 28 where God works together for good, uh, God works together for good all things to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That includes trials and tribulations and distresses and persecutions. Even David, haunted 
hunted rather by his enemies, would write Psalm 18, verse 30. And at the beginning of Psalm 18, verse 30, the verse begins this way, this God, his way is perfect. David writes that as he's running from his enemies. Talk about trials and persecutions. This God, his ways are perfect. These are great truths. We're going to continue picking them up in just a minute. But as we recognize these great truths, we understand that the purpose and the, of sufferings and the difficulties that we face in our life is that God is refining you and I. My great-grandfather was a rock hound. And he actually was very instrumental in building a lot of the roads in Oklahoma. And during the time where they were transitioning from wagons and horses into uh, Model T's. And so he was, his first road that he built as a very young person was built with a road grader drawn by horses. And as he would uh, be carving out these trails that had been wagon ruts, and now he's filling them in and making them into roads fit for the Model T's and the cars that would follow, there was all kinds of stones that he would find along the way, and he would just collect them. And I remember as a, a little tiny kid going up with my great-grandfather up into the barn that was there in my grandfather's place, and in the, the upper room there, he had a lapidary all set up. A lapidary is a, where you cut rocks and you polish them and you prepare them. Your diamonds and so forth come out of lapidaries. And I remember going into this room and there's all these rocks, tons and tons and tons of rocks, and they were dirty, filthy, and they looked just like the rocks I had thrown out at the birds earlier in the day. And great-grandpa would take a rock and he would put it into his saw and he would begin to cut it. And he would shape it. And then he'd put it into the rock polisher and the next day I would go back up there with him and that ugly, nasty, gnarled rock was an expensive piece of jewelry the next day. Refined, cut. I remember the screaming that the saw would make as it was cutting through the stones. I remember the sound of the gritty uh, falling over the, or the grit falling over the stone and polishing it and making it perfect. And then I remember sitting there with him as he would take a file, a hand file, a very small, uh, polishing it up as he polished every stone to fit exactly the setting he had made for it. That is what God is doing in the midst of our trials. Taking that ugly, gnarled rock and using it for his glory. Cutting it, shaping it, perfecting it. The process of sanctification. But there is an opponent. There is an opponent. Notice that Paul begins to focus on the tempter's menacing. The tempter's menacing. And Paul lays out his heart again for us as we close in on verse 5. It says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul returns to his motivation. The trials faced by the Thessalonian believers could be used by Satan to deceive the believers into the false belief that God had abandoned them. In other words, Satan could flatter the heart of the believer and the believer would say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve trials. I deserve to have all things my way right away. So Paul sought to return to the reminder that trials were those things that they must endure, but it did not diminish Paul's heart for them. Paul sought to understand if they were allowing these trials to grow their faith or to diminish their faith. Take your Bibles and turn back. Keep your fingers here because we're returning quickly to 1 Thessalonians, but turn back to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. By the way, this is in the midst of a very rich text. It's the conclusion of eight chapters of solid theology, moving us from sinner to saint, from those who were outside of the arm of God or the gift of salvation and bringing us into a glorified state by the time we get to the end of chapter 8. Great theology dripping through every passage, every word. Paul says this in chapter 8, 
It says, for I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is so easy for us to be enamored by the temporal world that we forget the truth that was just spoken in that text. Let me read it again for you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. Did the Thessalonians know that the trials that they faced in the current situations that they were enduring, did they know that those present sufferings would find worth in the glory of the life that is to come. And that the glory of the life to come would far outweigh the sufferings of this earthly life. Do you know that? Do you know those truths? It's pretty easy to be enamored by the things of the world, to be driven by the motivations of the world, to view others as Uh, those that we ought to be pursuing as we look at them and say, wow, they have it all together, or they have the things that I want, or they have the lifestyle that I want. It's pretty easy to look at them and forget that the sufferings of this present life will be that which reminds us of the glory of the life to come, the wonder of the life to come. The problems remain. But they, only, they last only for a brief moment in the light of eternity, spent in the near presence with the Lord. Do you view trials in that way? Just a brief moment before you're in the arms of your Savior. It may be devastating and demeaning down here, but it cannot be compared to the glory that will be ours when we reach the other side. The hurts of this life will be followed by the words we sang just a moment ago, hallelujahs in the next. F.B. Meyer writes this, he expresses this truth well. He says, the sweetest scents are only obtained by tremendous pressure. The fairest flowers grow amid alpine snow solitudes. The rarest gems have suffered longest at the lapidary's wheel. The noblest statutes have borne most blows, or statues, have bore the most blows of the chisel. Let us, as Paul is expressing his heart here in verse 5, back in Thessalonians 3, let us also understand what he is concerned about. Satan's lure. Satan's lure. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer... I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The word for test here, or tempt, is a word that is neutral, actually. It, it doesn't, it's not positive or negative. It depends on the object who's doing the testing as to whether it's positive or negative. When God is the one who uses this, it is used as a a test, uh, that which is preparing us to follow him more faithfully. When Satan, when it's used of Satan, it is used as the word tempt. That's why the ESV translates it tempt, which is the better translation. Tempt is trying to trip you up. Satan is trying to trip you. He's trying to deceive you. And so therefore, the word takes on a positive connotation when it's that which is what God is doing, and it takes on the negative connotation when it's that which is Satan is doing it to you. And the word for tempt is the same word or the same idea of what a fisherman does when he throws his lure into the water. He's trying to deceive the fish into thinking that what the fisherman has thrown out there is tasty, live morsels and so therefore concealing the hook and concealing the trap that it is satan is doing the same thing to believers 
The avowed intent of the enemy is to disable their faith by deceitfully drawing them in to sin, tripping them, tricking them into sin. He wants to disarm them by tempting them with a hope, or rather with a host of malicious intentions. And part of that is, and Paul's greatest concern from the text that we have already studied this morning is, did God really want you to endure that trial? Doesn't that sound like what Satan said to Eve in the garden? Are you saying that God really said that you can't eat of that fruit? What is God holding back from you? Satan has been using that lie and that deceit ever since your first parents. And it works. And so Satan continues to use it. Paul's concern for the Thessalonian believers is that he did not want them to be deceived into temptation. He did not want the believers in Thessalonica to be similar to an earlier contemporary. He did not want them to be Mark Antony. He did not want them to be consumed by temptations. He did not want them to be able to stand against everything except temptation. Oscar Wilde was famous for writing the words that would say this, so that I can stand against anything except temptations. That's a true confession of a heart. And that's what Paul is concerned for, for the Thessalonian believers. Are we given to chinks in our own armor? Paul is concerned for these believers. And so he sends Timothy. Sends Timothy, his young protege, and he entrusts to Timothy the great task of ministering in this way to the Thessalonians. Put yourself in Timothy's sandals for a moment. You've been walking with Paul. You've been learning a lot from Paul. Paul says, Timothy, it's time for you to go to Thessalonica. By the way, he's already sent Paul on other endeavors as well, or will. Both he has and he will. This is one of the early ones that Paul has sent Timothy on. And probably the longest one that Paul has sent Timothy on. Timothy, I want you to go and I want you to minister. I want you to uh, exhort. And I, I want you to establish the faith of the Thessalonian believers. I was only there for three weeks. They're facing intense persecution. And I want you, Timothy, to go and do that work. If you're Timothy on that day, you go, Paul, are you coming? <laughs> I want you here too, Paul. Paul says to Timothy, I want to go, but I can't. Go and be faithful to the things of the Lord. What a great illustration of Paul's patient, loving, tender discipleship to Timothy by throwing him into the fire's furnace. But that's what he does. We have a lot to learn on discipleship. But Paul is concerned for the Thessalonian believers, and he uses it as an opportunity to launch Timothy into ministry. Beloved, I take immense comfort from the fact that God is not in the least bit interested in watching our faith get torpedoed. by all kinds of trials that we face. In fact, every test is designed by God to elastitize our faith, to make it elastic. When real faith is stretched, it does not break. When it's pressed, it does not fail. Paul himself admitted, we may get knocked down, but we will, be never, we will never be knocked out. Not for us. The shame of being counted out on the canvas will not come. One last passage to write as we close in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. You will be knocked down, but you'll be not, you will not be counted out. Make sure you spend time. That's a verse that you need to memorize. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
We praise you for the testimony and the example of Paul's yearning to be in Thessalonica and yet sending his protege, Timothy. Lord, there are so many lessons, so much time we could spend on the tempter's trials that were put into the feet or into the path of the Thessalonian believers. We could spend so much time on Satan's continued work today. We could spend so much time on Timothy's discipleship relationship with Paul. We recognize that as we move through this text, Paul was combining all of those, and we wanted to catch the glimpse of these great truths. So, Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, our voices would be raised, which would be the tradition of this week, that in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of trials or persecutions, whatever may come, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our neighborhoods, in our families, that we'd be bold testimonies for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that when persecutions do come, that we would be those who look up and with joy shout hallelujahs because of the life to come. Lord, we praise you that you have seen fit to allow those that you have redeemed to suffer in the way that Christ has suffered, to partake in his sufferings. It is very different from the way that the world views it. It's very different from the way that our own sin nature views it. But I pray that we as believers would be found faithful to humbly submit to the lapidary saw to be transformed into what you would have us to be. We know that it's going to take sufferings. We know that it's going to be taking the rough edges off. We pray that we'd be found faithful, yearning for and longing for that day when we receive glorified bodies. And we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, cause us to rise and to sing with a boldness that would be our testimony throughout the week as we sing these hallelujahs before you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.